HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Twenty nineteen is Heritage Radio Network's tenth birthday, and we've got a lot to celebrate. We need your support to bring you another year of the best in food radio. Help HRN ring in its second decade by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all of the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears are available in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org, and lots, if not all of them, are on Stitcher and Spotify, uh, iTunes, all those great places where you get your podcasts. I'm super thankful uh, this time of year for lots of things. I'm thankful for listeners like you who are taking the time out of your day to hear what I have to say, to tune in and hear my guests. And I want to make an appeal to everybody to please, if you like this show, if you listen to only this show, or if you listen to all 35 shows on Heritage Radio Network, please become a member. Uh, We are a member-supported organization. I know you're probably hearing that a lot uh, right now from lots of different places. It's the end of the year, but we are hoping and uh, we need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to keep this show on the air along with all the others. We do have a staff. We have engineering staff. We have bandwidth costs. And, you know, we have 35 shows a week. So it's a lot that you get for your dollars. If you go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, uh, you can become a member. You get There are all kinds of wonderful prizes and, I guess, uh, rewards at different levels of membership. Uh, and if anybody wants to give the full $150,000, uh, I will come to your house and cook you dinner for a year. So think about that. Today is episode number 131 of Feast Your Ears, and the theme today, is the sharing economy really about sharing? When you get into an Uber, do you feel like you're sharing that person's car, or that they're doing you a favor by sharing resources? Perhaps in other places people feel this way, but in New York City, where I live, it's the same as hopping in a taxi. It's someone's car that is their business, not usually a side hustle, to use a term I hear a lot. When I use Airbnb when I travel, I look at it as an alternative to a hotel, not really as a chance to share with someone. Though sometimes that happens if I'm staying in someone's apartment and we happen to cross paths. But more often than not, I'm using space without actually sharing it, and I'm paying for it. It's a transaction. It's not really about sharing, but it's about monetizing assets and resources, a car or an extra room. While I think these are both useful services, the idea that you have anything that they have anything to do with sharing isn't really accurate, because there's likely never a time when I would be in a situation to share with them in return 
For me, sharing is often, though not always, personal. When a friend in Japan texted me that he'd met a young man from Germany who was traveling alone around the world, and that this young man was not feeling well and he was headed to New York and needed a place to stay that night, I immediately said yes. He stayed with us for two days, became a new friend, was an excellent guest, and now I have a place to stay in Munich if I find myself there. That's a sort of economy, more of a pay-it-forward kind of thing, I guess, than what we're now calling the sharing economy. I'd like to think more about where we're headed as a collaborative economy. I hope that that's really what it becomes, where resources are shared as part of perhaps collaboration, how we can work together to help each other, can take many forms. My guest today is Dr. Michael Carolan, professor of sociology at Colorado State University. He's the author of many books, including No One Eats Alone, The Real Cost of Cheap Food, and Cheaponomics. His most recent book, The Food Sharing Revolution, was just published in November. Thanks, Michael, for joining me on the show today. Thank you, Harry. My pleasure. This will be fun. So your book takes a look at how our food system is changing and explores the good things as well as the challenges that are coming with those changes. How did the book come about? It's it's a long story. I'll, I'll keep it brief, though. Um, there's a couple points that I just want to touch on. One is that I'm and I know others are like this as well, have gotten a little tired of the celebratory attitude around the um, sharing economy and Agreed. am a bit shocked that there hasn't been uh, as much critical understanding and unpacking of the, the sharing economy um, as I would like to like there to be. And so I thought through the lens of food in particular, because food is one of those things we are comfortable in sharing in some respects. We have seed sharing um, networks, seed libraries, cooperatives, and so forth. And so I thought it'd be an interesting lens to really kind of unpack the sharing economy and talk about aspects of it that might be working, aspects of it that might not be working, so that we can glean from that an understanding of how we might want to facilitate a sharing economy in the future that actually generates well-being and what I talk about in the context of of food sovereignty. And then the other piece of this is, and this speaks to kind of a, a broader philosophy that I have, is I think it's it's it prudent for individuals like myself who have the good fortune of traveling all all over the place and interviewing activists and farmers and 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 community organizers and others who are experimenting around food and learning from them and telling their stories because there's this really interesting juxtaposition and narratives that I found between how we conventionally think about food and food systems and how um, we talk about them in a more alternative sense. And this is kind of born out of frustration, actually. And that is that we've conventionally been talking around food and this idea that there's these one-size-fits-all solutions that we have to be gunning for. So kind of a better living through chemistry ethos Hmm. that we've been kind of socialized into. And so this breeds um, focusing on, say, biotechnology and precision agriculture. And, and individuals have their own sort of pet solution that they like to tout and talk about how this will solve all of our problems. But then on the flip side, when we talk about kind of solving our, our food system problems, what I've learned is that, that we have to first and foremost abandon this one-size-fits-all solution. And I say it's born out of frustration because when I go on radio shows or on TV or I give talks to the public audience, inevitably I get a question that centers around uh, what should we do? What will solve our problems? Yeah. And, and it's a difficult, tricky narrative because we're so used to these sound, the soundbite solutions. Nobody wants to hear somebody lecture on for an hour about what we ought to do. But, but the truth of the matter is, is that our solutions have to be community-based. They have to be agroeconomically based. They have to be rooted to place for them to actually work. And so this is where I come in in, in my, my quest to try to 
tell stories about where I think people are, are innovating in really creative ways. And this kind of brought me to these collaborative arrangements uh, around the sharing economy, which are really doing things that are, that are, that are story that bring about stories. I don't think enough people have, have heard of, let alone thought about. And so that's kind of what I've tried to do with this book is tell stories so that people could perhaps glean from that, not only inspiration, but maybe ways in which they could take bits of what I'm, what I'm saying in the book and plant them within their own communities and, and see with the hope that they might be able to reinvent a, 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 a type of food system that works for them and their community and their culture and their, and their ecology. Well, I think, I mean, I think that's, I think that's great. And I think you, you've done a great job of that in the book. And I appreciate that, you know, you're, you are really clear and open about the fact that these are incredibly complicated questions. I think that we strive for, uh, we strive for things to be binary, um, and it, I feel like that's happening more and more and more. And we, you know, what's the best restaurant? What's the best pizza? Like we can't have everybody, you know, God forbid there were all great pizza restaurants everywhere, right? We were right. trying to separate this thing out. And I think the same thing happens when we start to talk about these things. And, and you're right, the sort of idea behind the sharing economy, everything gets lauded as this, you know, it's great for somebody. But that doesn't right. mean it's great for everybody, and it's not great for every situation. I want to start, you know, I, I want to talk about uh, the farms and the farms that you visited. And I mean, you have a, you actually, you grew up in a farming community, right? A, a small community in Iowa. I did a small rural community, northeastern Iowa, a town of about 350 people. I myself was not a farmer. My father was raised on a farm. He was a high school teacher and and uh, painted barns in the summer. So as he said, he could afford to teach. And all my friends were farms. I actually spent all my summers on farms, but painting them. And so I am very familiar with that. My father also had a very large or has a very large garden that's about an acre in size. And so um, we, I spent my summers also producing fruits and fruits and primarily vegetables and and selling them and giving them to community members. So it's something that's near and dear to me. When you were growing up, I mean, uh, what was what was the sharing like between people in the community on the farms at that time? Well, it, it's it, I grew up in the in the 80s. I was born in 1974 and so I remember the 80s quite well and of course the famous 80s farm crisis and I do distinctly remember um, you know, it was a common occurrence to be to attend a, uh, a farmer auction as farmers mm. began to be forced out of business or retire early, and and so I was I was struck by how the system seems to be working against these people who I knew knew to be extremely hardworking individuals, and so that really that that struck a chord in me, which which has I think resulted in what I'm doing today. But in terms of sharing, these are these are types of things, especially back then, that were that were occurring below the radar. I can speak from real personal experience, where you know, and my father still to this day, there is a lot of an awful lot of bartering that goes on in these economies sure. um, between my my dad and others. We'll have a, a, a local farmer come and he'll till deep my father's garden um, every year in exchange for that. My dad will give a, a a couple dozen years of sweet corn later in the year and things like that. And there's a lot of those sorts of things that are happening and what what strikes me still to this day is that the, the way in which those help build uh, community and the, the that communal aspect that that convivial aspect around sharing I think gets missed when we talk about the sharing economy today in the context of uber I've seen unteen uh, pieces of scholarship that look at the economic side of the sharing economy I haven't frankly seen a whole lot of of really well done social science research that looks at the social, political, and cultural aspects of this so-called sharing economy. And, and from my own experience, some of those 
benefits of the sharing economy that are so celebrated, such as Uber and, and other platforms that try to mimic Uber, um, one could argue there are deleterious aspects to share, socially deleterious aspects to sharing, where where um, where the the convivial aspect is actually being impaired due to some of these new platforms. And I guess I just want to talk, I want wanted to talk more about that. Yeah, I mean, you, you profile a farmer who has, I think you said, $2 million worth of relatively new farm equipment that he does not actually use terribly often on his own farm, but through uh, an app, the name escapes me, I didn't write it down out of the book, uh, but through an app, he's able to connect with other farmers in really far-flung parts of the country and ship those pieces of machinery by flatbed truck and basically they get kind of rented as if I, you know, I wasn't using my car one day and I rented it to somebody in, you know, Colorado for instance and shipped it out there and they used it for 2 weeks and then shipped it back to me. Right, there's there's a couple of uh points to that that I wanted, wanted would like to just touch on really quickly. And yeah. Some of this is born out of anecdotal um, experiences that I've had, and then they were kind of, they were supported by coming across similar stories as I did research for this book. And I've, I'm willing to bet for yourself and other listeners that some of this also probably rings true with your own experience. Yep. And this is kind of around the idea, the premise that the sharing economy will reduce, will reduce consumption. And before I even did research for this book, I saw examples of individuals kind of upgrading, whether it was their car, if they were for Uber, or upgrading their kitchen space, if they were doing one of these these, these kitchen platforms, these sh- table sharing platforms yeah. where they would cook for people and bring them in. And the, the idea thinking being around this is that if they can generate some sort of additional supplemental income by engaging in these, share, these sharing spaces, these platforms, then that would justify and arguably offset. And perhaps even from a tax perspective, even provide them with some tax reasons for reinvesting and upgrading in in a better car or in in a a better industrial commercial, say, um, stovetop. And so there's this there's so that's one piece of it. The whole question, the premise that that these sharing platforms actually reduce consumption, um, there's evidence that that problematizes at best that proposition. But the the other one that really concerns me as a social scientist, and I talk about this a fair amount in in the book, this is how some of these platforms actually commercialize or risk commercializing relationships that used to be non-market based. So the individual that you mentioned in the book or that was, had a very expansive collection of of, uh, very high dollar John Deere implements. I tell the story about how he used to loan these implements to his neighbor. Right. And more recently, he stopped doing that. And I don't have the page in front of me, but I, he, he basically says to roughly paraphrase, why would I want to let somebody use for free equipment that I could make 30 or 40 grand on by by loaning it to them or quote unquote sharing with them over the course of a couple of weeks? And so it really puts on an individual's uh, a hat where they begin to see relationships in a very commoditized, yep. marketized type of form. And I also tell stories about that with regard to these table sharing platforms where an individual used to have friends over all the time, and now he's more reluctant to do that because he could have paying customers at his kitchen and at his table than friends who are non-paying who may, who, or who may bring a bottle of wine. And then the flip side, how his friends now feel when they do get the invitation to come over, increasing pressure to, if not pay 
hey, at least bring more wine over or something like that, because they then realize that their relationship and this meal may be costing their friend money because they could have paying customers. Right. He could have paying customers at his table as opposed to freeloading friends. And so I'm really interested in how some of these platforms might actually even change social norms and, and crowd out, to use economist language, kind of non-market values in exchange for, for more market values that are centered on kind of commercialization. Sure, and and I you know and I have to wonder how that will affect down the line um, those communities, whether it's that community of friends who you know while you know the thing that they are talking about in the book, and the one friend is lamenting that the other friend who's now able to charge people to come to his house for dinner, um, you know, has to pay. Those are the same people that you call when you're sick or when something happens and you need a place to stay or when your house burns down. And if you don't have that social support network, I think that that could present a real weakening of communities that I think are really strengthened by the bonds of actual sharing, not just commoditized sort of modern sharing economy. Right, right. And then that in turn may have this knock-on effect of of, of of relationships and exchanges that you relied on based upon social capital and friendships are now having to be marketized too because you don't have those social relationships and so you know that's when the market comes in and so it it risks it risks kind of further perpetuating this thinking that um, well this whole this the, this perpetuation of of non-market exchanges being commoditized and and turning into market exchanges because we no longer have those social capital that social those those networks those social networks to rely upon that we used to yeah we're going to take a, a short break uh here and uh when we come back um i want to hear a little bit more about your childhood and sharing with your with your sister and your family um and how you're teaching your kids how to share <laughs> great Next year, Heritage Radio Network is turning 10. For the last decade, we've been committed to bringing listeners around the world the very best in food radio for free. Our small staff and incredible network of hosts work hard so that listeners can tune in each week to hear the important conversations in food policy, stay on the cutting edge of cocktail culture, and hear the latest updates in food tech. But there is no HRN without the support of listeners like you. Become a member of Heritage Radio Network today and help HRN get a strong start to our second decade. Choose from exclusive member gifts and stay in the loop on discounts to upcoming events. There's no better time to show your support. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate and wish HRN a happy birthday. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and my guest today is Dr. Michael Carolan, whose new book, The Food Sharing Revolution, uh, talks about how startups, pop-ups, and co-ops are changing the way we eat. In the first half, we were talking about farms and talking about the sort of the so-called sharing economy. Um, but Michael, I want to talk a little bit, you know, we're both parents. I have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. Uh, you have a 12-year-old and an eight-year-old. Uh, and you grew up with a sibling, I grew up with a sibling and, you know, I, I, as a parent, I think a lot about sharing, about encouraging my children to share, uh, about when they don't share with one another, about how we share with friends and family. Um, so I'm wondering if in the, in the course of writing this book or in the course of your work, um, if you have thoughts on that, did you share a lot with your sister? Uh, did you fight about things? (laughs) (laughs) I love the question. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, 
how much I should say, and then in turn, if I should even tell my sister that I'm on this radio program, because then she's inevitably going to disagree with what I say. Sure, well, that's um, a sibling thing, right? That's... <laughs> it sure is. You know, I would, you know, let me, let me, I'd like to address your question, and I'll talk about it with regard to my kids, because this lets me um, t- talk about an aspect of sharing that I'd like to be able to mention on your show that, yeah. I, that I don't think gets addressed enough. And I think it's particularly prudent in the political moment that we live in today. And that is, you know, sharing is great, but we also have to create conditions where we even want to share. Hmm. And I'm, I'm really concerned about, you know, that, that aspect, the preconditions that make sharing possible to begin with, how do we make people even comfortable or want to engage in a, in a relationship that's non-market-based? You know, the beautiful thing about market-based relationships is you don't you don't even have to you know give a crap about the person that you're um, in, engaging with. We've got contracts, we've got regulation, we have other things that take the social completely out of the equation and make it, those types of exchanges very safe. But if you want to share, you're beginning to talk about a relationship that starts looking quite a bit different, and it can yeah. make a lot of people really uncomfortable. Um, and so I talk about, in one case, um, uh, I, I used the example of one of these table sharing platforms and how we need to think about sharing in the context of creating social capital, which is a term I've used already during our talk, but we also want to don't want to write off how some of these exchanges create opportunities for us to be around people that are different from ourselves. Absolutely. And, and maybe even potentially have the ability to engender some type of empathy in us, because we know from social capital that social capital can be positive, but also uh, uh, white nationalists in the mafia are, are have are great examples where there's strong social capital, too. Yep. And I really want to, one, one thing that interests me about the sharing economy when there's actual sharing, especially around food, because food seems to disarm people sometimes. We there's this talk about how we're we're in, we're living in a moment where we're all kind of part of a political tribe. And one thing that really interests me around food is food seems to be something because we all need it for yeah. our survival. Sometimes allows us to take those political tribal identities off for a moment and allow us to engage with people at a level that we otherwise wouldn't be engaging with them at because we all either want to eat good food or we want to learn about gardening or we want to learn how to pick asparagus or cook it. And so that's something else that I think sharing might be able to provide is, is gives us a space sometimes where we can engage with people that might pray to a different God or no God at all, love somebody from a different sex, speak a different language, and it, and it disarms us in a way where we can engage with them. And this ties back to my kids because I really want to try to put them in spaces where they're able to engage with people that look different, talk different, think different from themselves. So they would be more predisposed, perhaps, to engage in some of these non-market-based relationships in a way that doesn't make them feel uncomfortable and always elbows out. And so whether that's them being in, in a, a, a school where English is the first language for half and the second language for others, or putting them in, in experiences where they're playing with people and engaging with people, and then they're interested in the sport or the activity, and they're not so much concerned about what their skin color is or what type of language they speak. And that's another element of sharing I think we need to think about, is even just creating the environment so that sharing becomes something that's not only natural, but something that we're comfortable in doing. Absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the challenges I find with my children often is I tell one of them, you have to share that with your sister or your brother, when what I really want to teach them is that I want to teach them the want to share. Because telling them they have to share 
is me just telling them what to do. It's not the same thing. Right, yeah. You know, that's a, that's a really important distinction. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, the distinction between what we have to do and what we want to do. Yep. And I'm not a social psychologist, but I've read enough of the literature to know that when you make people do something that they think they have to do, even if they don't want it, it never works. Yep. And so, yeah, instilling within people that ethic, that feeling that this is something they want to do, is something I think uh, individuals like myself, social scientists and social psychologists, need to think more about. Because you can't have a, a social movement if if you don't have people that don't think the world ought to change. And that whole question of where do we where do we derive our oughts from, those those ethical positions is something that shouldn't just be for the, the, the philosophers of the world, but for people that are really interested in how people think and who they interact with. Yeah. I mean I, I also wonder in looking at you know in looking at the next generation, your kids, my kids where they, you know, how will they feel about some of these things? So you mentioned in the book, in one of the the food sharing, uh, Airtable, I think one of one of those platforms where someone can cook dinner in their own house and people can sort of buy a spot at that table, a la a restaurant, but it's not at a restaurant; it's in someone's someone's residence. Um, talking about how, you know, really the the person who's cooking um, is much more kind of open and willing to say, okay, I'm going to invite these people I don't know into my house. And I want to invite these people in and we're going to have this monetary exchange, but I'm going to be cooking them my food, whether it's, you know, whether they're from another country or whether they're, they specialize in some kind of, you know, gastronomic, you know, uh, cuisine. But that really it, there is a little bit of pushback that is not often reported from the people who are coming because many people don't want to go into a stranger's house for dinner. Right. They'll go into a right. restaurant because it's a public space and we have social norms around that, but we don't have social norms about going into someone's house who you don't know. And so that to me is very interesting and I'm wondering if, you know, uh, you know, if in 20 years if our children will think nothing of that. It will be no big deal to just, you know, oh, I'm going to go down the street, I'm going to knock on number 35 and we're going to have dinner. I've never met this person before. No big deal. Tomorrow night I'm going to go to number 39. It doesn't make any difference. Right. Yeah, I'll mention that Yes, I, I appreciate you bringing that point up. I, I talk about the difference between how we, how, a lot of people might articulate their reluctance to go to a quote unquote stranger's house using one of these platforms to eat because they might say things like, scare, fear over food safety. But then when you talk to these individuals more and you peel back the layers, what you often hear it sounds a lot more like they're just scared of going to people's house, which goes back to the point about um, we are just not used to engaging with people that are that are that are strangers. Yep. And I talk about a interview a woman from um, Bogota or maybe it was Medellin, Colombia, where the culture is different there, and she was able to kind of peel that and pull that point out because culturally for her it was so different and so obvious the type of fear that exists in the United States towards strangers than exist might exist in her own country. And so, yeah, the question about what the next generation, um, what that might look like, I, I do find some hope. And you mentioned you're reading the book, so maybe you haven't gotten to the last chapter yet, but I, I have some very interesting word clouds at the very end. And I play upon this idea of using word clouds because Raymond Murphy famously said uh, certain words um, are are like uh, portals into to one soul, and you refer to these words as keywords. And and I kind of play upon that, and I asked individuals that are embedded within a a kind of sharing economy, specifically a cooperative, certain questions about how they understood certain keywords like social justice and autonomy. And I asked a different group of individuals that were embedded within more of a conventional property economy 
the same question. And it was remarkable how different their responses were in terms of understanding some of these fundamental key words. And so when one group, when I asked them, the conventional kind of food group, I asked them what autonomy meant for them, they mentioned terms like individualism. And, And with the other group, I asked them what autonomy means for them, and they used the term interdependence. Now, you can't get much different in terms of understanding one word where one group understands it in terms of individualism and the other group understands it as interdependence. And that kind of speaks to how kind of the the environment we're brought up in and the world we live in can really profoundly shape our outlook and our worldview and even understandings of what what is and what ought to be. And so I, I do think that perhaps if we engage in some of these practices that I tease out as having societal benefits and it and it normalizes a, t- a different type of world view that's more based upon non-market relationships than exclusively commoditized market relationships it may have a profound impact in how we think good policy ought, what good policy ought to look like and what a fair and just food system ought to look like as well yeah i agree and i mean i and i think that you know you bring up in the book the and you, and you brought it up earlier in our conversation today that this idea of a one-size-fits-all in so many of these things, whether it's in the labor laws, whether it's in the food safety, whether it's in the, you know, what, you know, people having to kind of skirt the rules and ask for a donation when they're doing these kinds of dinners because they're not an inspected restaurant. Um, you know, I think, I think a lot of those things and the idea of one-size-fits-all really is one that we have to get away from, which, of course, is complicated and, and is going to require a lot more, a lot more work. I mean, um, I would love to talk a little bit, um, you know, I have a lot of experience helping small food businesses get off the ground um, here in the New York metropolitan area. And uh, so the the idea behind kitchen incubators and shared kitchen space and, and, the, and the sort of pitfalls and the successes of those is one that I've spent a lot of time talking about. I wanted to ask in your research, um, you know, what you've come across as far as, you know, I feel like the model currently is that lots of small businesses start out in these kind of shared kitchen spaces. I mean, there was one recently that closed in Brooklyn that is going to be reopening. Um, and I, you know, we'll sort of see how that works, but you know, they start out in a small space and then eventually the goal is always to have your own manufacturing, right. Or to, (laughs) or to move up to scale up and get someone with a much bigger factory to co-pack for you. One of the, the issues that I have seen time and time again, both in businesses that are sharing space, whether it's just, you know, interrelated businesses who decide to go in on a space together and it's not the sort of incubator with a, you know, changing cast and hundreds of different businesses operating or in those kinds of spaces is that there's, I have seen a a lack, I guess I would call it a lack of stewardship of the physical um, and of the equipment. And so one of the complaints I, you know, I know someone who's run a couple of these kitchens and has always reported that people don't take good care of the equipment because they don't own it. And then of course it, puts this interesting or, or, I guess, difficult strain on the ownership who are trying to run these spaces because someone breaks, say, an oven and then goes to the ownership who own the oven and who part of the deal is they're responsible for the upkeep and the maintenance and says, well, this oven is broken and I need it to do my business. <laughs> so I'm wondering right, if you yeah. came across any of those issues. And, and even with the farm stuff, I mean, you know, if somebody breaks a million dollar harvesting machine while it's 500 miles away who's responsible in that model right yeah no it's you know the the famous line is who has ever washed a rental car right yep. i mean rental cars are great examples we yeah. we all beat them to heck probably yep. when we drive them and we certainly have never taken a taken it back after it's been freshly washed and, and waxed yep. and so i do think that that's a 
extremely valid point, but it also speaks to the whole reason why we need to start thinking about the social, the cultural aspects related to the sharing economy, too, and why it's really not going to work until we also create some sort of community and in, in, in societal expectations and some social norms um, that can re- rein in, you know, to yeah. speak frank, some of those bad actors and those bad apples. Um, because, you know, you know, it reminds me, I tell my students to give them an example of how strong social norms are. Um, there was a there's been quite a bit of research that looks at, say, speeding in small rural communities mm. um, compared to neighborhoods in, in urban areas where people are moving in and out, and 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 it and why you don't why you might not see speeding happen in sm- some of these small rural communities, even though the vast majority may not have a police force whatsoever, and you may go weeks without seeing a cop, and I can certainly attest to that. And the reason why is that if you're speeding down the street, everybody's going to know what your car looks like, right. and and before you're even at the end of that street, they're going to probably call your grandma, your <laughs> mom, and dad, and tell you what you just did. I mean, yeah. the power of social norms are incredible, incredibly strong, and I think that element of the sharing economy is something that we need to think more about how can we build community around these systems these 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 ecologies um and i mentioned one particular uh, um uh, kitchen sharing platform where they're trying to create one of some of these ecologies around it so that there are some of these social norms so that we can rein in some of this this behavior that's frankly the result of a of a system where we we can we don't have to think about the, the societal impacts of what our actions have on others yeah Right, exactly, because you would, you know, you may never, you may never see that person again, right? I mean, it happens as someone who lives in an, you know, in a in a very urban environment, all the time. People honk in the middle of the night. They drive down the street. They've got, you know, straight pipes on their motorcycles, and you know, all that stuff is super annoying. But I'm never going to see that person again, and they're right. never going to see me again, so they don't care. Right, right, right. And, uh, and this is also I mentioned in the book. You know, this is not it's, the point is not to to do away with some of these laws and regulations also we just have to think think about them differently and and think about we mentioned the one size fits all you know a lot of our laws are written in such a way that they are one size fits all and they're premised on the fact that that the 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 market tends to elicit bad behavior where yep. there's an incentive to some degree to perhaps exploit labor or maybe do bad upon some of this equipment if you don't own it and, and you don't know the people behind it. But on the flip side, some of these laws, a lot of these laws make sharing difficult. It's very difficult to volunteer labor yep. um, because of, 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 of laws that are set up under the presumption that labor is easily exploited and we have to do everything we can to make sure that everybody who works gets a minimum wage, has benefits, and so on and so forth and that makes sharing that makes volunteering very hard and so yeah it's 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 back we have to move away from that either or mindset even when it comes to our regulations because the regulations are impairing sharing um for in a lot of instances absolutely and and i don't mean to you know i I don't mean to vilify people who have broken equipment oftentimes i think it also has to do with just not knowing right and it's not you know if you are a small business owner and you scraped together ten thousand dollars to buy a combi oven because it's what your business needs you're going to treat that piece of equipment much differently as you point out with the rental car example Right. You you don't you you know, you don't drive your own you know, you're not going to drive your own car over a curb. But if you were in a situation where it was easier to drive over a curb in a rental car and you thought it had the clearance, you might actually do it. Right. And that's not you know, that's because there is you know, there is likely little recourse or because you just don't know. Right. Right. Well, Michael, what? Oh, go ahead. 
No, please, I was just going to mention, I may also mention, you know, there's the, there's the model of sharing property, um, but then there's also the model that goes around with, with sharing in a way that might allow you to purchase your own property, but thinking about even the sharing economy as it applies to the, the, the financial system as a whole and, and getting into issues of peer-to-peer community-based lending and other things or other ways, I think, that we have to think about sharing too, not just sharing stuff and sharing knowledge, but even thinking about how we might share in ways that, 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 that are financially based too to enable some of these smaller scale entrepreneurs to have some success in our marketplace that it's increasingly difficult to have success in because um, um, because credit is just not available, especially post-recession. Absolutely. And, and, and the barriers to entry, right? I mean, your example with the volunteering in the book, you talk about small wineries who, you know, need that labor to help them with the harvest and help them with the crush. And they, they, it is a celebration and people volunteer because they want to be there because it's fun. And they have, then they have a, you know, maybe they get some wine out of it at the end. Um, whereas the larger, you know, the largest producers are not doing that because they have an economy of scale and because they can pay people or because maybe they don't want people to see what's going into their wine, who knows. Uh, but that, you know, that those things are kind of at odds with each other, but the way the laws are set up, it really favors the large corporations and not the small operators. Right. Yeah. It's a bit ironic um, that uh, it's the notion of volunteering work or working without um, pay is considered an unfair labor practice. Yeah. Whereas providing millions of dollars in subsidies for some of these large corporations to have them come in is just considered good community business sense to incentivize to incentivize economic growth, um, and so yeah, it's it, it, it's unusual and interesting how the system is currently set up to that inhibits and perhaps even intentionally so the ability of of some of these practices. Yeah. Um. Well, uh, I wanted to, you know, we're, we're nearing the end of our time, although we could go right. on, I'm sure, for hours discussing this topic. It's, it's very interesting to me. Thank you so much for taking your time today to, to be My on pleasure. the show. Um, are you working on a, on a next book? Do you have a next project in the works? I do have a uh, project in the works, and it speaks to something that I had alluded to a few minutes ago, and that's around this idea of how food might be uh, provide a platform to help heal some of these cultural and political divides that exists in our country too, whether they're rural-urban divides, whether they're divides that are based on, on culture, ethnicity, nationality. Um, I'm really interested in, that, in how food, in this book, I'm really interested in how food might be a way of, of healing um, our democracy. Oh, that's great. Well, I, I look forward to uh, I look forward to seeing it when it comes out. And uh, I would encourage anybody who's interested in this topic uh, to pick up a copy of the book we've been discussing today, The Food Sharing Revolution. Uh, it's been a really great conversation, Michael. I really appreciate it. As have I. Thank you, Harry. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. This is the final episode of the season. Uh, we're going to take a couple weeks break, and I will be back with new episodes starting in January. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as all of the other great shows produced here at Heritage Radio Network at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to rate and review the show on those platforms, and please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. And you can find me on Instagram at The Foodballer. Talk to you next year. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.